In January of last year, we began our study in Matthew's Gospel and noted that Matthew is making here an announcement that Jesus is the long-awaited-for Messiah who has come to fulfill the hopes of Israel and bring blessing to the nations. That blessing begins with an acknowledgement of who Jesus is. The blessing that Jesus has for us begins by our acknowledging who he is. He is exactly who he says he is. He is not who we want him to be or who we imagine him to be. We confess readily that Jesus is the king. That blessing is also found in our repentance. The first words of Jesus' public ministry recorded by Matthew is a command to repent, to turn away from your sin. The blessing that he has for us is realized in so much as we are ready to turn away from a life that dishonors Christ. And that blessing is also found thereafter in our obedience. Having received Christ as Savior and as King, we then live our lives in obedience to his commands, and there is blessing in obedience. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is the first major teaching block in Matthew's Gospel. We've been in it for some time now, and it is very much the ground zero of the Christian ethic. This is the foundation. This is what the Christian life ought to look like. For most of the sermon thus far, Jesus has been teaching us how we are to act, behave in the world. For the most part, what Jesus has been saying within this sermon is what his disciples should be doing in an active sense. When we get to chapter 7, in verses 1 through 6, Jesus teaches how it is we should receive the world or how we should perceive the world. He talks here about how we should evaluate, how we should think, how we should judge that which is around us. And specifically, Jesus teaches here that we should not judge unfairly, harshly, in an ill-informed manner. If we do so, that kind of judgment will come back upon us. Rather, our judgments, our evaluations of the world should begin with a self-examination. And our judgments should, above all things, Esteem the gospel. That is these six verses in a nutshell. Don't judge harshly. Such judgments will come back upon you. Judge in such a way that you begin by examining yourself and ensure that in your judgments, your evaluations, you prize the gospel and the health of the gospel. Now, the argument plays out in 
four distinct moments, points. Jesus issues the command. He then gives the reason for the command. He then offers a correction. And finally, what I've called an exhortation. These six verses unfold in a fourfold argument, command, the reason for the command, the correction, and the exhortation, where there is judgment amongst us that is harsh or ill-informed. May God's Word correct it this morning. Where there is a lack of self-examination in our lives, may God's Word encourage it this morning. And where there is not a treasuring of the gospel, may this text teach us all the more to prize Christ and his salvation. Beginning then with the command, do not judge, or literally, judge not. Two words, don't judge. This section of the Sermon on the Mount, not just these six verses, but the broader unit that we're about to enter into, contains some of the most well-known verses in the entire sermon and some of the most misunderstood verses in the sermon. Do not judge. Judge not. It is subject often to a misinterpretation and a subsequent misapplication. The misinterpretation that people often bring to this text, judge not, is to assume that when Jesus says this, he is forbidding any kind of evaluation that condemns. He's forbidding any kind of negative assessment of anything around you. That's the misinterpretation that is often brought to this text. Jesus forbids me to make any negative assessment. With that misinterpretation, then, a misapplication is made. Specifically, we tend to elevate this verse above all other verses as if somehow it now should govern our understanding of the rest of Scripture, the practical outworking being that if there is any questionable activity, anything that is morally not quite right, we are forbidden to speak against it. It is very, very common today for people to appeal to Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, don't judge me. Don't judge me. I know my behavior doesn't seem to tally with the ethics of Christianity. I'm a Christian. I'm not living in obedience to the word, but don't judge me. That's a misinterpretation followed by a misapplication. First of all, we should never elevate one verse above all others as if that is somehow more inspired or gets to serve as a commentary on all the other verses, Scripture agrees perfectly with itself. And if somehow your interpretation of one verse does not tally with the rest of Scripture, 
it means you've interpreted the verse wrong. We need to let this verse sit within its context and interpret it as such. Secondly, regarding the misinterpretation, when Jesus uses this verb to judge, it is not speaking merely about offering a negative assessment, much more broadly to judge properly understood simply means to consider, to weigh, to assess, to evaluate. And it may be that your evaluation of a set of circumstances or a particular action or of a person is negative. Equally, it could be that your assessment, your weighing, is positive. As Jesus issues this command, judge not, he's not forbidding us to evaluate. He is saying, do not judge in a harsh manner. Do not judge in an ill-informed manner. Don't judge with a wealth of ignorance and without any knowledge of the situation. That is to say, by inference, make proper, well-balanced, informed assessments. Now we see that from the example, the illustration that he gives immediately after. We'll get there in just a few minutes. The illustration of the the speck and the plank shows us that when he says judge not, he's talking about harsh judgments, ill-informed judgments, even hypocritical judgments. It is not a prohibition against assessing, evaluating, considering, but a prohibition against doing those things in such a way that you demonstrate your ignorance. You're ill-informed. You don't understand you're being harsh unnecessarily. Now, how is it? How is it that we would ever make such judgments? You have to remember the bigger context. Look all the way back in chapter 6. You'll remember this broader unit of the sermon began in 619. That's when this section of the sermon began, and in 6.19, he said, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. And he goes on, and then he gets to his point in 22, and he says, Your eye needs to be healthy. Think back to when we studied that text and remember that Jesus was exhorting us to be single-minded. Your eye needs to be single That is, you need to focus on God and your focus on Him informs necessarily everything around you. If you are not single-minded, your eye is not healthy. If you have an attachment to the things of the world, if you serve as a slave to masters, then the most immediate consequence, verse 25 and following, is that you will be an anxious person. Remember the the line of thought that flows through this text. The most immediate outworking of your double-mindedness, your unhealthy eye, your lack of single-mindedness, is that you are an anxious person. If you have an attachment to money, 
It doesn't matter what your bank balance looks like, you will always be anxious. If you are serving as a slave the notion of friendship and affirmation, it doesn't matter how many acquaintances you have, you will always be anxious. If you are serving like a slave, the God of family, it doesn't matter how many photos you manage to get where everyone's smiling. It will never be enough. Your anxiety comes out of your failure to appropriate everything under the reign of a sovereign God. These things are not bad in and of themselves, but they need to be under and informed by your understanding of a sovereign God. Insomuch as they are not, but they rise up and now you are trying to serve as a slave to masters, you are opening the door to anxiety in your life. That's the first consequence. It's an internal consequence. You're an anxious person. Secondly, another consequence of a failure to be single-minded is that you begin to judge others in a harsh manner. Again, there's that flow of thought. Be single-minded. Have a healthy eye. If you don't, you will apportion too much weight, too much importance to certain things in life. And as you look at other people, you will judge them in a way that does not accord with the Bible. Your judgments will be ill-balanced. They'll be ill-informed. They will be incorrect judgments. There's an example of this very principle. Perhaps the best example we have is in Scripture. And we can turn to look at it now. Turn with me to the letter of James. Later in the New Testament, as we have it, sitting after Hebrews, this is not actually the first time that we've turned to James while we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, and there's good reason for that. Possibly James was the first letter chronologically written in the New Testament. And what James is doing here, the brother of Jesus, what he is doing here is explaining and expounding upon the teaching that Jesus himself gave to his disciples. James is a very, very practical letter. There is on average a command, an imperative, every other verse. And James is trying to show these first century Christians in light of the coming of Jesus Christ, here's the so what, here's how you live your life. And it's remarkable when you study the letter of James, there are dozens upon dozens of connections specifically with the Sermon on the Mount. So when you study James... You have another Bible open. You need two Bibles. You have James and you have the Sermon on the Mount. And you see how James is grabbing at the Sermon on the Mount and opening it up and further explaining it for us. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, judge not. Some translations even render it, judge not unfairly. That's the point. James shows us what that might look like. Chapter 2, my brothers, show no partiality 
as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Here's the example, verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So there's the principle being played out in an example. In this case, the example James gives is of somebody who has unduly placed a priority on earthly riches. They're not looking at these things appropriated under the reign of God. Their eyes not healthy with respect to riches. And that causes them to make bad judgments. A well-dressed man comes in and he gives him the place of priority. A poorly dressed man comes in and he tells him standing room only. He's making a bad judgment because he's not focused. His eye is not healthy. And that's informing the way that he evaluates. Look at the correction. Verse 5. Listen. My beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? You have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? You see how the correction that James offers is to look to God. The most immediate correction to this ill-informed judgment is consider how God thinks about these things. When you focus on God and you see the world the way God sees it, now you will not judge unfairly. Now James writes this with a particular concern that the church be the church that they get along with one another, and they showcase to the world the glory of the gospel. He's concerned that by offering these incorrect, ill-informed, unfair judgments, there will be divisions in the congregation. And his concern is exactly right. That leads us then to the reason why Jesus issues this command. Back to Matthew, he says, Judge not... Don't render unfair, harsh evaluations. Why? That you be not judged. This is the reason for the command. Most immediately, Jesus probably has in mind here those around the disciple. So here's a disciple he judges poorly. His eye is not single. It's not healthy. He makes a bad evaluation. Consequence, those around you will start to evaluate you in the same manner. At a philosophical level, 
what Jesus shows us here is that life plays itself out in a series of cause, effect, action, reaction relationships. Everywhere we go and all that we do, the way in which life works is by cause, effect, action, reaction, or as we read this morning in Galatians 6, you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. You need to train your heart to know, to believe, and to behave in light of that truth. It is one of the most important principles that you will learn as you seek to live well in this life. You reap what you sow. And it is a principle that is at risk of being lost today as we conduct our relationships less and less in person, up close, more, ever more at a distance. We don't feel immediately the consequences of our decisions. But make no mistake, as Paul says, God will not be mocked. You reap what you sow. There are consequences for your decisions. And so... Jesus hits upon what I call the inflection of reciprocity. The way in which we work as humans is to imitate one another. We live our lives up close with one another, and we start to do that which we see. When a man and a woman have been married for a long time, They finish one another's sentences. Spend too much time with your dog and you begin to look like it. (laughs) I'm only kidding. At least I hope that's not true. As you offer ill-informed judgments, don't be surprised when people start to judge you in the same way. You are breeding a spirit of harshness. And those around you begin to imitate, and very soon you are on the receiving end of the ill-informed, harsh judgments. This is why this command is so serious for the group of disciples. You can see how already the golden rule is in view. In just a few verses' time, Jesus will say, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Because that's exactly what will happen. If you want people to treat you harshly, treat them harshly. And it will happen. It will come back to visit itself upon you. A critical spirit will be infectious amongst the group of disciples. Understand, you can ruin a local church by ill-informed, harsh judgments. If your manner amongst your brothers and sisters in Christ is to be critical, to be harsh and to judge unfairly, you are reaping a destructive spirit in the church. Now, there's probably another layer of meaning in the reason that Jesus gives because he repeats himself. Look again, judge not that you be not judged. There's the reason. But then he says the principle a second time in verse 2, for 
with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why does Jesus repeat himself? Because there's another layer of meaning beyond your experience in the community of disciples the passive verbs in verse 2, you will be judged, it will be measured unto you, are often referred to as what we call divine passives. The actor is not named, but the passive verb is intended to drive our thoughts to God. If you judge in a way that lacks all patience, lacks all grace, lacks all understanding and love and charity, don't be surprised when that is how God deals with you. It's the same principle that Jesus gave at the end of his teaching on the Lord's Prayer. Chapter 6, verse 14, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, Jesus is not here teaching that our final right standing before God is based upon our behavior, our merit. We cannot effect our salvation. There is a broader context. Remember, Jesus' public ministry began with the call to repent. And then he looked at those fishermen and he said, follow me. There's the issue, the cry of salvation, receive Christ for salvation. That's the broader context of this sermon that you always need to keep in mind. And along the way, Jesus keeps testing, keeps pushing to ensure that the disciples truly have received him in a saving manner. And so he says harsh things like this to cause us to think about what it is that truly enables us to form right, balanced, gracious, and charitable judgments. I'll put it this way, until you have received Christ as your Savior you cannot in any consistent or genuine manner offer judgments that are fair and charitable and gracious. You're enslaved to making harsh judgments of others. The only means by which you can begin to obey Jesus offering proper, charitable, grace-saturated judgments is to appeal to the unfair judgment. You appeal to the unfair judgment as the means of making proper judgments. What do I mean by that? The unfair judgment was when Christ suffered God's wrath having done nothing wrong. That was the unfair judgment. He stood and received the wrath of God as an innocent man. You appeal to that unfair judgment rendered on your behalf as the means by which you might walk in obedience to Christ's command. As you look to the cross and receive the salvation that Christ freely offers, 
It is the only possible means that you can then walk in obedience. And so we must always keep in view the broader context, the mission of Christ to save sinners. And I want to appeal to you today to receive Christ for salvation. Now, assuming you have, Jesus assumes that his disciples are on board with the gospel. Assuming you have, how then do you make progress in putting away a critical spirit, unfair judgments? How do you make progress in making grace-saturated, patient, love-filled estimations of what's going on around you? Well, Jesus moves on to give a very well-known illustration. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? You do not notice the log in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Again, one of the most well-known portions in the sermon. Picture it, two buddies in a workshop deciding to do some woodwork. The first mistake they make is that they don't put on their safety goggles. All of this could have been avoided if they'd just put on their eye protection. But they don't, and so as one is working, a splinter flies up and is now in the eye, And so his buddy's going to try and help him. And he turns towards him and he tries to help him, but he's fumbling because what he hasn't noticed is there is a log in his eye. Jesus is being humorous here. He's giving an illustration that causes his disciples to laugh, but in order to make the point. And the point is this. You cannot make sound judgments, fair judgments, until there has first been a level of self-examination. Sound judgments, fair judgments, grace-saturated judgments, the kind of judgments God makes with you are only possible in so much as you have first examined yourself. If you do not, you render yourself a hypocrite. You can't make the judgment of someone else. You can't offer counsel. You can't offer correction because you are a hypocrite. There's a log in your eye. There's a problem that you have failed to deal with. It's sobering to consider that only here in the sermon, and in fact in all of Matthew's gospel, does Jesus refer to his disciples as hypocrites. If you've been tracking with us, you'll know that that term is used very specifically by Jesus at a number of key points in the sermon. It's not just a throwaway term. He chooses it at particular points, normally with reference to the false teachers of the day, and the warning consistently throughout the sermon is, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrites. 
And then we get to his teaching on making right assessments. And he says, if you don't start with a level of self-examination, you're a hypocrite. You have become one of them. You cannot offer counsel, advice, instruction until you've first looked at yourself. Secondly, you can't do it because until there has been a level of self-examination, you can't even see the speck clearly. Sin causes you to think wrongly about sin. If there is sin in your life you have not dealt with, you are in no place to offer counsel to someone else who perhaps has a minor sin in their life because you see their sin incorrectly. You can't see it properly because sin causes you to think improperly about sin. See how Jesus in his illustration says, take the log out, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's a wonderful illustration of this very point in C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. I'm sure many of you have read it, a series of fictional letters to devils, one writing to the other, to advise on how this junior devil should waylay the Christian. And he says at one point, when two humans have lived together for many years, it usually happens that each has tones of voice and expressions of face which are almost unendurably irritating to the other. He says, work on that. Bring fully into the consciousness of your patient that particular lift of his mother's eyebrows, which he learned to dislike in the nursery, and let him think how much he dislikes it. Let him even assume that she knows how annoying it is and does it in order to annoy. If you know your job, he will not notice the immense improbability of the assumption. And of course, never let him suspect that he has tones and looks which similarly annoy her. As he cannot see or hear himself, this is easily managed. I love the illustration. It explains exactly what Jesus was teaching here. We are prone to blow out of all proportion other people's faults. In this case, not even a sin, a mannerism. We are prone to make that which is not a sin, a sin issue, And we are prone to make minor sins that could very well be covered by love into much, much bigger issues. We never consider how we might be offending others. And we even determine in our minds that this person is behaving in the manner in which they're behaving so as to attack us. The reason they're behaving like that is to come after me. It's a personal attack, it must be, and so I feel grieved to my spirit to correct it. 
all the while never once considering where that sin may be present in our lives. If there is no self-examination, you cannot offer sound judgment. By contrast, when you are in the practice of examining your own heart, then you are well-placed to give sound counsel, grace-saturated correction. When you are in the practice of opening this book and allowing it to pierce your heart, then you're in a position to speak into other people's lives. And you'll be amazed when you regularly examine your own heart. God, search out my sin. And he is faithful to show you your sin when you are regularly examining yourself just how merciful you will be towards others. Now, as you speak into the lives of those around you, how much patience you have with their failings, how much grace you are ready to exercise with the fact that they are not where they want to be. We are none of us where we want to be in our sanctification. You exercise the utmost grace towards one another. You speak words of love. You cover sin with love. You exercise grace. And you treat them just as God has treated you. That's a sound judgment. So from there, Jesus then issues what I call his closing exhortation. His command is don't judge unfairly. Don't be harsh. Don't be ill-informed. The reason is because when you do, it will come back to visit you both in the community, and it may ultimately be representative of the fact you haven't put your faith in Christ. The correction is that every judgment would begin with self-examination. And then he says, Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This verse, apart from its context, is incredibly difficult to figure out. What is Jesus saying? Added to that is its context. Why here? What relationship does this verse have to the flow of thought? Is it disconnected? Is it a standalone saying? Or is there some relationship between the judging rightly lesson and what he says here, and I believe there is. The risk is that Jesus teaches his disciples, don't judge harshly. And they shrink back and they stop judging. He says, don't judge harshly, unfairly. And they respond by saying, I'm not going to judge. I'm not going to evaluate. I can't do this. Jesus wants his disciples to assess, to evaluate, to consider, 
to reason, to judge. He wants his disciples to be thinking about the world around them, and the church depends upon this. The health of the local church depends upon, in part, us being willing to speak the truth to one another in love. If there is something that is not right, you need to say so. If there is something that is right, you should say so. The health of the church depends in measure on us being willing to judge, being willing to offer sound assessments of what we see going on around us. And verse 6 speaks to that issue. It functions like a a counterbalance or an anchor or a, a ballast to the previous verses. Don't judge harshly, says Jesus, but verse 6, you still need to judge. You still need to speak the truth in love to those around you. Now, the metaphor changes from the guys in the wood shop to now dogs and pigs. What is Jesus speaking about? The most common, and I think the correct interpretation of verse 6 is that Jesus has in mind a sharing of biblical wisdom, the truths of the kingdom, even the gospel itself. A sharing of those truths with those outside the believing community. And he's simply calibrating their expectations. You've got to have realistic expectations. You must judge. You must speak the truth in love. But know that sometimes your counsel will have consequences. And as it relates to biblical wisdom, truths concerning the kingdom, the gospel itself, there are occasions when you will speak the truth in love and it will not be received very well. It will not be received very well to the point where they may even seek to attack you. Now I know in saying that, I open Pandora's box with a whole host of questions concerning our evangelistic efforts. I know that some of you are working through this very issue at this time, sharing the gospel with hard-hearted friends, co-workers, family members, to the point where they are viciously angry. We will get to those practical questions. This issue comes up again in chapter 10 when Jesus sends out the disciples and he says, when they don't receive you in the village, shake the dust off your feet. We're going to get to the practical questions that arise from a truth like this. The principle in this text is simply that you must judge. You must speak the truth in love regardless of the consequences. That has to be true of us. In the church, it must be true of us. And notice the priority that Jesus places upon biblical wisdom, truths of the kingdom, the gospel itself. I want for people to be speaking into my life in a hundred different ways, but especially when it concerns the health of the gospel in me. I especially want people to speak into my life when it concerns the glory of Christ putting, being put on display through me. 
That's the priority that Jesus affords in verse 6 when he uses this illustration of dogs and pigs and pearls and don't do that. He says that wisdom is of the utmost priority and you need to judge, especially with reference to truths of the kingdom. So in the church, we should be a community of people that are sharing biblical wisdom with one another week after week, Sunday by Sunday. We should be ready to speak into each other's lives. Having examined ourselves with soft and humble hearts, we speak to one another so as to build one another up in the glory of the gospel. So that when people come in here, they have a taste of what the kingdom will be like. There is something different about this community. Not least, they are willing to be transparent with one another in a desire to build one another up in love for the glory of Christ. And when you go outside of the community, you still speak the truth in love. Just know that sometimes it won't be well received. And that's okay. Jesus said it would be so. John Stott rightly comments on this verse, the command to not judge is not a requirement to be blind, but a plea to be generous. And so if there is a critical spirit in your heart, it's time to stop. If there is no self-examination in your life, it's time to begin. May the gospel be esteemed amongst us as we give sound counsel to one another for the glory of Christ. Let's pray now to close. Father, we give you thanks for this text, for these words of our Lord. Forgive us for when we have judged unfairly. Forgive us for when our eye has not been single, when we have served as a slave some other thing and that has caused ill-informed judgments. Forgive us. Father, lead us in the way of examining ourselves. May we come humbly before your word with soft hearts, ready for it to expose our sin. May we deal with our sin. And in so doing, offer then sound judgment, grace-saturated judgment, judgment that is patient and kind and charitable, in the same way that you have dealt with us. Prepare us for when our sound judgment is not received well. Give us wisdom for those times when it may even be appropriate to stop. And all the while, help us to treasure the gospel and the fame of Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.